Adam Barron is a novelist and associate professor in creative writing at Kingston University. His first novel for younger readers, Boy Underwater, was published in 2018 and selected as a Waterstones Book of the Month. This was followed by You Won't Believe This in 2019 and a third book featuring the same protagonist with the unforgettable name, Cymbeline Igloo, is recently published. Adam joins me today in the Reading Corner to talk about this wonderful thing. Welcome, Adam. Hello, Nikki. Thanks for having me. Lovely to be here. Before we get on to discussing uh, the novel, This Wonderful Thing, uh, I know that our listeners are going to be really interested that you run a creative writing course at Kingston University. I've wondered what it is about your course. How, how does that work? First of all, I'm fortunate enough that I don't have to run it anymore. My <laughs> wonderful colleague, James Miller, does that because I, I, I do teach there. I am there, but I don't have to do the ad- so much admin as I used to. Uh, at Kingston, uh, we are really interested in student writing, whatever that, that may be. So some programmes will want just crime writing or they'll just want literary writing. But we, we're we about just helping students find their voice and and. My approach is really quite technical. So I give specific technical advice about how to make your story better. Um, We talk about things like symbolic ascension and the inciting incident. And we we get our hands really dirty. So we do a lot of on-page editing. We give loads and loads of feedback to students. And the work they do is amazing. And the, the journey they go on. The improvement they make is incredible. People say, can you teach creative writing? It's more about can you learn it, really? Are you able to put your assumptions aside? Are you willing to be brave enough to take a piece of text, get feedback on it, and then change it and really radically move it? So it goes from being the thing you wanted to express to get it out of yourself to something that's objectively good, that will stand a chance in the marketplace. So what we really care about is the student writing But we also have loads of industry connections and we have visiting agents and editors, people from the industry who will talk to students about how they can translate what they've done into uh, marketable writing. And we get lots of students going on to publish their books, which is always such a thrill when you get an email saying, hey, Adam, I did it. Wow, I'm getting a book deal. It's it's the most wonderful thing. Mm. all fiction or non-fiction poetry across the board uh, uh, we do non-fiction we have we've got a center for uh, life writing as we call it and we've got some brilliant poets so it's it's whatever and one thing we do however we if you come as a poet or you come as a prose novelist we will challenge you to experiment in other genres to give you a, a perspective on your own genre because people often think what i write is natural but what they don't often uh, appreciate is that they're writing in a specific form and if if we ask you to come and write in a different to experiment in a different form it will give you a a greater appreciation of your own form and the and the requirements of it fantastic i am so glad i asked you that question because it gave me a little bit of an insight uh, i think i think your books are i think this wonderful life is very technical not so that as a reader you're really aware of that but i really did feel it was very skilled writing that i was reading and i'm hoping we're going to get on to <laughs> that the process of writing is to be imaginative and splurge but um this wonderful thing has got two points of view and that was technically difficult to do and, and it's the first children's book I've, I've i've done that with adult novels in the past but to do that and allow a child to be able to young person 
to be able to follow the story through as the stories dovetail, it does require in the editing process to think, okay, right, how am I going to, to do this? And that requires a lot of subsequent skill that follows just the initial burst of ideas. Yeah, there are two viewpoints, as you say, that uh, begin to merge. And as a reader, of course, I just love the story. And I genuinely really did love the story. And I found it very, very funny. But I'm also thinking, you know, it's page 101. And only now am I beginning to see how these two stories fit together. I just thought it was brilliant. Thank you. One thing I tried to do in the editing process, and you might go back and look at the, the chapters, is actually link the chapters together without perhaps you realising. So even though they're not connected until page 101, they're doing similar things. And so the pieces are speaking to each other in terms of their theme. So they're both undergoing uh, family stress. Their families are having issues. And hopefully, thematically, they're talking back to each other and they feel like they're in the same book. And and I think also part of it is that you will be wondering, well, why are these two stories next to each other under the same cover of the same book? So in a sense, the, the reader is doing a lot of that work. And it's interesting to wonder, had I taken these two stories separately and put them in two different books, would you have understood that uh, that they they are part of the same story well probably not and the fact that they are together means that you you assume you know they must be and so what I wanted to do and it's something I want to do in all of my books is really include the reader in the process of the creation of the book of course I'm aware now that listeners are saying well come on then tell me what's this story about because we've got straight into uh, the technical side of it To sum it up, this is a tale of two families and a teddy bear. Uh, Tell us a little bit more. Well, Cymbeline is a young lad who lives in, uh, he goes to primary school in Blackheath. He lives in Greenwich with his mum, he's a single mum. And he uh, is having family issues. His dad was supposed to take him to Barcelona for the weekend, but didn't show up on a Friday after school. He gets home and finds that his house has been burgled, but also mum has moved her fiance into the house with his two uh, young daughters and so he's got loads to deal with and I, something I like to do with my characters is to just throw them into a maelstrom get them get them moving in time give them loads of challenges so he's having to negotiate that and then on a school trip to the wonderful hall place which is a Tudor house about five miles in that direction Sleep for listeners. Uh, and he sees uh, that there, uh, Elizabeth I had something called the Phoenix Medal made for her. And I love Tudor history, uh, Elizabethan history. And Cymbeline realises that the one he sees in Hall Place is a fake. And he needs to work out why, because his best friend, Veronique, seems to be going off him and becoming much more interested in his new stepsister. Uh, he thinks that if he can work out how this can be a, a, a fake, then Veronique could be interested in, in him again because she is a super brainy girl. Now, meanwhile, on the south coast in Brighton, where I used to live, um, uh, a young girl called Jessica is also having problems with her family because her dad's really ill and has had to give up, give up his job. Her mum is a nurse and uh, she's having to take on extra shifts. They've got no money. It's, uh, they've got loads of stress. And on a wonderful, rare day out to Cookmere Haven, which is this beautiful uh, place on the south coast near Brighton, she finds this mangy, dirty, filthy old teddy bear in a river takes it home, cleans it up, and it it sort of symbolises everything that could be good about her life. Um, Meanwhile, meanwhile, back in London, Cymbeline 
has a significant special teddy bear of his own, which he's a bit embarrassed about because he's a bit too old for that, really. And he sneaks it in his sleeping bag when his friend comes around for sleepovers and things like that. Um, but uh, we begin to realise there's maybe a connection between Cymbeline, who, who in the past has lost a significant teddy bear. And then similar things start happening in both the stories in that Jessica's uh, house is burgled and um, gradually her family life begins to get worse and worse as her dad gets more ill. Really, the book is about families and how a family doesn't have to be uh, parents married to each other with 2.4 children. Uh, families can look any way they like to look as long as the people in them um, care for each other and love each other. And that's what that's that's what the book is about. I think we should hear a little bit of this story to give a flavour and maybe chapter one is a good place to start. Okay, Uh, this wonderful thing, chapter one, Jessica. Here's something that will make you laugh. Yesterday, we went to this place called Cookmere Haven. Mum, Dad, Millie, Benji and me. And we played poo sticks. What? Not clutching your side? not rolling on the floor in fits of giggles. Well, get this. We played poo sticks with real poo. We did. Honest. The poo belonged to Benji, who suddenly needed one. Dad had left his potty in the car, so Mum pulled his shorts down by this big stream. Once Benji had done it, the poo rolled down between his trainers, bounced down the bank and jumped into the water. It sank came up and swirled round to the middle, which would have been quite funny on its own. But Millie had an idea, something I have to admit, because she's bigger than me, and if I take the credit, she'll hit me. She grabbed a stick from beneath a bush, me not knowing what she was up to until she lobbed it in. Poo sticks, she bellowed. Poo sticks, we're playing poo sticks with poo and sticks. I shouted as I grabbed one, two and bunged it in after. We're playing poo sticks with poo and sticks. And we weren't the only ones. Mum said, girls, and stop that. But Dad clearly didn't think that girls applied to him. He grabbed a stick and chucked it in as well, leaving Mum to tut and wipe Benji's bum as the three sticks and poo began to move. Now, We'd done what most people do when they're playing poo sticks. Cheat. (laughs) Millie had thrown her stick in front of the poo. I'd thrown my stick in front of hers and Dad had thrown his in front of mine. But it did not matter. While our sticks turned in circles or got snagged on weeds and reeds, the little brown ball from Benji's bottom overtook them all. Poo! Millie shouted jumping up and down on the bank, is really good at poo sticks. Not all poo, I shouldn't think, Dad said. Good job it wasn't a sticky poo. And if you're not laughing now, forget it. Well, Benji wanted to know what the fuss was about, so once he was bum-wiped and dressed, Dad hoisted him up onto his shoulders. We all ran along the bank, Mum, still not that uh, amused as Millie and I shouted, go sticks, while Dad and Benji shouted, go poo. And some bird watchers looked on in shock. Mum was even more embarrassed when all the sticks got jammed up on some stones and Millie, who had crocs on, ran into the stream. What are you doing? Mum yelled 
Millie had pulled her dress up and was holding it in place with her chin. I can't let him win, Millie said. She's super competitive. Sticks are useless. But Mum bellowed so loud that Millie got out without doing her own poo. And we had to watch Benji triumph. Our sticks soon far behind as the poo, almost as if it knew it was in a race, sprinted on. It swept beneath a footbridge. It wobbled past a few ducks, which some bird, other bird watchers were looking at. It began to go so fast that we could hardly keep up. Benji, almost hoarse from shouting, and Dad panting to keep up with Millie and me. Then the stream got wider. There was a beach up ahead. The water was shallower and the poo started to skip, hopping out of the water as it leapt over little stones and round small boulders. It was hard to see, then more so, as the sun burst out and made the water all sparkly. We're going to lose the poo, Millie shouted, urging me to go faster. We stumbled on, thinking it was gone forever, until Millie caught sight of it. She pulled me by the arm and we sped up just in time to see the poo roll out of the stream and onto the beach in front of us. We stared down at the poo in awe and respect. It didn't even look tired. Olympic standard, Dad said, puffing to a halt beside us, then coughing. He's been having some problems with his fitness recently. Olympic standard poo. Let's do it again, Millie said. Let's go back. Only the poo belongs to me this time. You pick it up then, I said. And because Millie wants to win stuff so much, I swear she would have. But Mum arrived, really cross now, hissing at Dad about being poorly recently and how he wasn't supposed to run as she scrambled around in her backpack. She pulled out a nappy bag, scooped the poo up and marched off towards a bin. Millie sighed and I was disappointed too, turning back to see if any of the sticks had made it that far. Maybe I'd come second. Or first poo stick made of stick, not poo. When Millie realised what I was looking for, though, she spun round too, both of us shielding our eyes until the sun went in. Which is when I saw it in the water. My eyes just settled on it and I stared, blinking, sort of calm inside as if, for some reason, it had wanted me to find it. Not a stick or another poo. No. I saw the thing that would change our lives forever. Da, da, da. I have to admit, my 10-year-old brain is still laughing at all the poo in there. <laughs> Can I just say, Nikki, never leave your 10-year-old brain. Why should you? Wonderful rhythm to that chapter as well and the way that it comes uh, together at the end. But you wanted to tell us where the idea came from so i wrote boy underwater and i have a very respectable lawyer friend called kate and i went around her house for dinner and she just read boy underwater and at the end of boy underwater cymbeline loses something he loses a teddy bear and kate loved my book but she said under no circumstance do i accept that there's no way that it's gone and i suddenly had an idea i had an idea for the whole book it, it was amazing it occurred in a flash so i've dedicated this book to kate but also i write poems for children and i read some at oxford high school and i read a few of my poems but i um i wrote one about poo and the place just fell about nikki and on the way home because i've been thinking about how can i start this and the words poo and poo sticks came to me so that's where i got the idea from and i have to say it's probably the most mentions of poo in 
in one chapter ever. You just well, I hope so. I, I would like to know that. I'd like to get the world record for that. A uh, couple of things that I wanted to ask you about. Um, so the topography of the story, I just wondered whether that was really important to you that the worlds that you write about are set in real places because they feel very three-dimensional then when you're writing about them. It comes the other way around, actually. I don't think anybody can write in, unless they're inspired by setting because story ideas come out of setting. That, that, that's where they come. You, you, can't, you can't write a, a scene like the first scene that I wrote unless you're by a river and by the sea. And, and then that river connects with the place that Cymbeline perhaps lost that teddy in the first book. So setting is massively important. I don't try to find story ideas and think, OK, this would be a good book to set there. The story ideas come from the sense of place. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. And, and and so I, well, I, my advice to writers is, is never turn down a chance to go somewhere new, because who knows, five years later, you might think, oh, and this setting might just come into your come into your brain. Mm, interesting. Um, I haven't asked you the question about whether it's writing for children is different. I felt there was no condescension in the writing whatsoever. And I felt that as an adult reader, I was being treated to your observation just as much as if I was reading an adult novel. For example, there's one little bit where Jessica's father is ill and in hospital and mum comes out to see the children and there's an observation of her face. It says it was honest, like she'd taken off a mask, like a mask I'd never realised she wore. I'd never had that thought before that parents do almost always constantly have a mask on when they're Mm. with their children. And there's this sudden moment of honesty, if you like. There's no condescension to a child reader. I imagine that would be the same if you were writing for adults. Well, I I think it's there's two two things I'd say to that. First thing, it's all about point of view. So choose a point of view and be utterly truthful to it. So that is the first time in her life that her mum has spoken to her. With utter honesty, she says, look, your dad is really ill. We haven't told you, but I'm not going to. And and I remember times as a child in my life when my when my parents actually spoke to me really seriously. I, I remember being told by my dad that my grandfather had died and I was 11 then and, and thinking, this is a different dad. This, this man talking to me has never spoken to me like this before. So you go back to those moments. But oh, the idea, the idea that you would write a book that a child would like and an adult would not like, it seems ridiculous to me because, as you mentioned before, you were 10 years old once. So perhaps you need to readjust slightly when you're reading my books than you would if you were reading Tolstoy. You go back to that part of yourself that is younger and, and more naive. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think it, it's very healthy for people to read books that are aimed at children as adults. And the ones I really like, I forget I'm reading a children's book, I'm just reading a book. I think there's something really important in that. It's not about children being in the story. It's something about point of view. There's something about not uh, about being honest to that point of view rather than writing what you think children want, which actually sometimes ends up being very patronising. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't bear to do that. And so the first chapter there was funny and it's all about poop. There's some very serious things happen in this book. And these things don't want to be two dimensional. But Kids know that bad things happen in the world. But I suppose one thing, one thing that is different slightly about writing for children is that the child reader has to trust me and that I have a great responsibility that if I am introducing difficult themes, 
that I will do so sensitively and I will the book will land on a positive and inclusive note. I think, you know, that you can write about almost any subject. Getting the tone right is important. And because you use a lot of humour, again, uh, there's a subtlety in how you use humour. If you make it too funny, you diminish the yeah. seriousness of what you're yeah. writing about. So it's, it's yeah. you know, it, it's it's a skill and it, it's it's great. So... I have uh, two questions that may seem a little frivolous. <laughs> okay. The first one uh, is the quotation from Charles Dickens. Yes. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And of course, yes. it starts with the worst of times, your story, to yeah. move on to the best of times. That quotation, it's one that vexed me for many years. Do you think Charles Dickens punctuated it with a comma? <laughs> Uh, I think you probably did. Uh, look, look, it's 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 so resonant and brilliant when you think about it. The, the comedians have gone on about it, it can't be both. It's not. Uh, which is it? Is it the best of times or the worst of times? But it's such a great line. But on on a more serious note, I chose that because the first thing to happen to Cymbeline is terrible. It's one of the worst things that can happen. It's emotionally very difficult for him, and I wanted to uh, put that quote in and flip it round and say, look, the good times come. Because I know that, 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 that a child has to know at the beginning that this is going to work out for Simile. That's why I used it. But yeah, I had to. When you quote from anything, I wanted to go back and make sure I got it exactly right. But And again, I was looking at it going, is that, is that correct? Could have been an editor way, way back. Next. Who knows? And Who knows? I, every, every edition I've ever read, it's a comma in there. And I think, well, do you know, I would have put a semicolon. I'd have loved a semicolon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the other question, which is a very frivolous one, is about... I mean, you do win the prize for the most unusual name ever with Cymbeline Igloo. Yes. Where did uh, that come from? <laughs> well, see, the thing is, this, uh, and this is something I tell my creative writing students, there's, all, there's loads of things I can teach about creative writing and other people far better at it than I can teach you. But there's something about names. They come to you. You don't know where they come from. And if they don't come, then I don't have a character. And it's, and it's very strange. If I have to think what the character's name is then i then i don't have a character it is bizarre and in fact the story of why he's called simbly Sim- igloo is part of boy underwater and when you get to the end of it you understand why they called him simbly igloo but that was retrospective i wrote that when i wrote the novel my next novel is going to be called oscar's lion and he's oscar he's just oscar there's no way i can choose his name it doesn't it's not up to me somehow because naming is, is also quite an important part of this novel, isn't it? It's what do they, I mean, some of the names, what Mrs. Banana Toes, the, the toy that has isn't yellow. Doesn't <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes you just imagine if you have children or you have friends, imagine them being called something else. You couldn't be, it's bizarre. And the naming of the special teddy uh, in this turns out to be quite important as well. The teddy of just, most extreme importance. Yeah. Yes. Just to, yes. Just to prove that this isn't something that you can manufacture really um because cymbeline igloo it's 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 about the sound the rhythm just feels right you know it feels like something that came naturally so I thought well you know what I wasn't sure I thought maybe you had done that thing of playing a game and you'd put some names there and some different types of housing and seeing what so I tried it and it just shows you how rubbish it is when you do. Oh, go on, let's have some examples. So I did all these strange kings names, like uh, so. I had Canute came out. Canute came out with condominium. Canute condominium. I like him. He's like a real estate tycoon in Florida. 
he owns this mansion and, and, a, and an alligator comes in and eats him at some point, I think. Maybe it does work then. <laughs> I think it does. I'm having him forget you said that. He's now my character, Canute Condominium. Oh, I love him. brilliant. Adam, it's just been such a joy talking to you today. Uh, so many interesting insights, um, which I know that our listeners are going to really appreciate. So thank you so much. You are welcome. Lovely to talk to you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.